This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Friday. Daphna, excited? I'm excited. We we just have four questions. We're going to finish out the week. Everybody's doing such a good job. Do something nice for yourselves today <laughs> uh, with your five extra minutes, I guess. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess you're up next. Oh, I'm up. Yeah. yeah question, you're up. question 61. You obtain a chest radiograph on a preterm infant and notice an incidental fracture. The infant had been born at 24 weeks gestation and had been receiving a prolonged course of parental nutrition after a diagnosis of medical neck. You review the components of the infant's parental nutrition of the following, the ideal calcium to phosphorus ratio by weight for neonates receiving TPN is A- 0.3 to 1, B, 1 to 1, C, 1.3 to 1, D, 5 to 1, or E, 3 to 1? Um, yeah, so as you remember, we had a pharmacist at our previous institution mm-hmm. that would call every day to complain about the fact that our calcium to phosphorus ratio was incorrect. And they were right. <laughs> yeah, of course they were right. Um, but good for me. I eventually learned it. <laughs> I did not rely on the pharmacist's daily phone call. So I kind of know the answer. And the answer, the calcium to phosphorus ratio is 1.3 to 1. And uh, I'll tell you a bit how I remember that after you you go over the answer for us. Well, tell us. So I know it's not 1 to 1. I know it's like 1 point something to 1, right? That's that's the extent of what I remember. How do I remember it's 1.3 to 1 is because C is the third letter of the alphabet. So it's 1.3 calcium to phosphorus ratio. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's helpful because some, sometimes you say, well, is it, is the phos higher or is the calcium higher? So it's the, the calcium is 1.3. The phos is one. Yeah. You do have um, to remember that it's 1.3, right? I mean, this is where the, right. the, the mnemonic is not the, the most, uh, the most rigorous, but that's okay. One point. I think it'll work. I think it'll work. Right. Thank you. So we know that inadequate calcium and phosphorus intake has been associated with diminished bone mineralization, especially in the preterm infant, but really any infant receiving um, TPN for a prolonged period of time. So you may have the right protein, the right energy for adequate growth, but calcium and phosphorus are still insufficient to sustain appropriate skeletal mineralization. Um, and they, they require this um, ratio, one, to avoid precipitation, but two, because they are, um, they're used up by the body better in, in this ratio. Um, we know that we can't provide very high concentrations of them together uh, because of the increased risk of precipitation. And there are lots of things that um, change the solubility of calcium and phosphorus and TPN. Temperature, um, what kind, how much amino acids we're giving, the dextrose concentration, the pH, um, the sequence of when did they add the calcium or the phosphorus first, the ratio and the presence of lipids. So like you said, um, the ratio is 1.3 for the calcium and 1 for the phos. Okay. 
I guess I'm Your next, turn. huh? Mm-hmm. righty. Um, question 67, Daphna. All of the following factors have been implicated in causing cholestasis associated with parenteral nutrition, except choice A, dextrose content, choice B, lipid content, choice C, longer duration of parenteral nutrition, choice D, ongoing trophic feeds, choice E, protein content. Okay. So, you know, this comes up in our day-to-day practice. Um, I know that basically everything we give in TPN can can uh, predispose us to cholestasis. So dextrose, lipids, protein, and being on TPN too long. Um, and I know that having more feeding and less TPN is a good thing in terms of cholestasis. So um, D, ongoing trophic uh, feedings have not been implicated in cholestasis. Good job. Thank you. That is you. the correct. <laughs> it's not like it was a super hard question, to be honest. Hey, uh, hey. <laughs> I'm going to pat myself on the back for that one. <laughs> Um, yes, you're right. Ongoing trophic feeds is um, the correct answer. It's not really been implicated. That's a strong word, right? Implicated mm-hmm. in uh, TPN cholestasis. Parenteral TPN cholestasis is commonly found in infants who require TPN uh, for a prolonged duration, usually anything above seven days, um, lack enteral feeding, or have an associated surgery. The pathogenesis is unclear. There's multiple alteration of uh, parenteral nutrition that have been trialed to attempt to to reduce the incidence of cholestasis. And I think this is where a lot of these things like cycling of the TPN, trying to reduce the exposure to lipids, like all these these different interventions are the ones they're referring to. All major constituents of the parenteral nutrition have been implicated in causation or aggravation of cholestasis, Mm -hmm. including a high dextrose concentration relating to hepatic steatosis, uh, a high protein concentration related to canalicular dysfunction, the toxic effects of intralipids on the hepatic cells. But uh, no one component has been identified, though, as the sole responsible uh, cause. Uh, the only treatment really has been to consistently and effectively treating infants um, with uh, TPN-associated cholestasis with the introduction of uh, enteral feeds, meaning the sooner you can put them on full enteral feeds, the better their outcomes are. Even a small amount of feeding, such as trophic feed, has been shown to decrease the incidence of uh, TPN-associated cholestasis. I think this is something that's, I guess, what the question was really asking was, even if you keep the babies on on TPN, mm-hmm. having some enteral feeds going really will provide benefit. Um, so all the options then are um, have been implicated except the ongoing trophic feeds. Okay. Uh, question 68. Mothers of very low and extremely low birth weight infants admitted to the NICU are more likely to have inadequate breast milk production compared to mothers of term infants. The milk production of the mothers of these preterm infants relies on the quality and frequency of pumping. The factors leading to inadequate breast milk production in women of preterm infants include all of the following except. That was another long question. Yeah. Okay. Uh, basically, uh, what, what, which of the following, <laughs> uh, lead to inadequate breast milk production, uh, which one does not, uh, lead to inadequate breast milk production. So a altered colostrum composition after premature delivery, precluding its use B delayed lactogenesis 
C, lack of appreciation of volume and frequency of pumping needed to be established in the first two weeks after delivery. D, lack of a hospital-grade electric pumps. Or E, prescription of progestin-based birth control pills. Okay, so to clarify, <clears throat> they're giving us factors that are associated with inadequate breast milk production. Mm -hmm. So they want to know which one is not a factor. Right. Um, choice A seems very wrong. Altered colostrum composition after premature delivery precluding its use. Um, if you've worked if you've worked in a NICU a day in your life, you, you right. know we say to the parents, bring anything you 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 pump drops, whatever you get. So there's no instance, in my opinion, that I can remember or that I know of where there's some type of colostrum composition that would say, oh, no, not that one, but this one, yes. So that, that seems extremely wrong. Like It really jumps at me. Uh, the others, though, do feel correct. Delayed lactogenesis that I, that I know to be true, that mothers who deliver preterm tend to have a little bit of a delayed process when it comes to milk production. And so that's, that's, that's true. Lack of appreciation of volume and frequency of pumping needed to establish. That is tricky, but I think it's true. I think the problem is that mothers who, who born preterm, they tend to produce a bit less, but they have to keep pumping pretty actively in order to establish their supply. Um, so I think maybe that's what they're referring to. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Lack of hospital-grade electric pump. Yeah, we know that to be a problem. And then the prescription of progestin-based birth control pills is also another issue that I'm that actually I know of. So anyway, the C C the one about the lack of appreciation of volume and frequency it's, it sounds a bit off, but not as bad as the first one where it says that some types of colostrum are not to be used. So yeah, definitely A. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a it's a, the answer choices are confusing, but altered colostrum composition colostrum good for for the purposes of the test colostrum good and. Um, uh, B, delayed lactogenesis. So basically, um, if uh, you don't really have uh, milk production until like the third um, postnatal day, that's considered lactogenesis and it is associated with preterm delivery. So C is basically saying like, does the staff or the parents understand that volume and frequency of pumping is important to really establish good milk supply? And so, um, you know, because we only ask for a little bit of milk in the beginning and then we advance over the course of, you know, that first week. Um, and so uh, setting goals for families by saying, you know, we want you to pump at least eight times per day, up to 12 times per day, and then to have a target of you know, the literature is varied, but 350 mLs per day by the end of the second week. So somewhere between 12 to 15 ounces um, uh, per day by the end of the second week helps really establish uh, breast milk supply. Lack of a hospital grade electric pumps. This is, I think, a complicated answer also, but we do know that the hospital grade electric pumps um, uh, tend to improve the quality of pumping and tend to produce more milk. Um, and we know that low quality pumps can result in painful pumping and lower milk volumes. And then E is tricky too, because pres pre prescription of progestin based birth control pills or the quote unquote mini pill is actually what most breastfeeding moms are put on. And so I, I thought that was actually quite confusing. Um, and so even the mini pill does have an impact on breast milk production. And it's, it's so it's not recommended to start right after um, delivery, but I'm not an obstetrician. 
but I do know the progestin-based birth control pills um, are recommended above the combination birth control pills. But if you will remember, it's the high levels of estrogen, but also progesterone um, that inhibit prolactin-mediated milk production during pregnancy. And it's really when estrogen and progesterone fall after delivery that prolactin increases and we have milk production. And and so that's why even the mini pill or the progestin-based birth control pills do impact milk production. That's a very typical Daphne thing you just did, by the way. What did they You said, but I'm not an OB. So you preempt by saying, I don't know much about this topic. And then you go and just lay it all on us with every detail. I did know a little bit about this topic, a little bit. I don't know much about torch infection, but it does appear that CMV in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm teasing. All right, uh, it's Friday. We're having fun. That's fine. Um, all right, I'm, I'm next. Hold on. Yeah, last question. Last is it the last question? Mm-hmm. Mm, it is the last question. All right, let's 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 finish with a bang. Question 69. You are meeting with the mother of a one-day-old infant born at 36 weeks gestation in the newborn nursery. The mother is uncertain about whether she wants to breastfeed. To help with her decision, she would like to know more about the immunoglobulin in human milk. Which of the following statements is true? That's a very specific question for a mother who does not want to breastfeed. Yeah, I was go- I was assuming they were going to say the mother would like to know about the immune properties of breast milk, but no, she wants to know about immunoglobulin. Um, yeah, so that used to be the parents that I dreaded. You know, the parents who have a PhD in something, and you're like, that's right, they, and like they probably, and then as a resident, you're like, they probably know more than me about a ton of stuff, and I hope I don't look like a fool, but. Um, Okay, immunoglobulins in human milk. Which one is true? Choice A, Daphna. Colostrum contains a lower concentration of immunoglobulins. Choice B, IgA represents 90% of all immunoglobulins in human milk. Choice C, immunoglobulins in human milk do not refer, pro- do not refer protection against enterobacteria. Um, the concentration of IgA in human milk decreases over time. That's choice D. And then choice E, there is no IgM in human milk. Okay. We're looking for the statement that is true. Okay. Colostrum contains a lower concentration of immunoglobulins. No, colostrum good. (laughs) One of the values of getting colostrum, even if we have moms who don't intend to breastfeed, is that we can provide these passive transfer of immunoglobulins. So, um, a is incorrect because we know mm-hmm. colostrum has tons of immune, immunoglobulins. B, B is the right answer. We know that IgA represents 90% of all immunoglobulins in human milk. That's just something you have to remember. IgA, breast milk. Come on, people. <laughs> I think the A is pointy. <laughs> oh, yeah, like you a, told us that. Like a nipple. So that's how you're going to remember that IgA is the predominant uh, immunoglobulin in human milk. Um, C is an interesting question because you're like, I don't know, I, is it IgA that protects against uh, Enterobacter? But it's the IgA that helps us with basically our, all of our mucosal surfaces. Um, so um, C is probably wrong. D, the concentration of IgA in human milk decreases over time. That's wrong. IgA all the way. And then there is IgM in human milk. So okay, I IgA. say that. Uh, B is correct. IgA all the way. 
immunoglobulins form an important component of the immunological activity found in breast milk and colostrum. So as you said, approximately 90% of all immunoglobulins in human milk contain IgA. Uh, newborns do lack secretory IgA at birth, and their, and their production of IgA really ramps up a few weeks after birth. And so infants who receive human milk have a higher concentration of IgA compensating for this deficit. Uh, secretory IgA binds specifically to respiratory and enteric pathogen, thereby immobilizing them and preventing their adherence to epithelial cells. The way I remember this, I don't know if you remember this from, from college, like Bio 101, there was this theory that was um, that I read in the bio textbook that said that animals lick their their pups because the mother exposes her tongue to the pathogens that are on um, mm. the pup and then makes antibodies that are then mm. passed on through the milk to protect the the pup against these infections. I I don't to be honest with you I have I remember that from from that is super cool and you know there is literature coming out about this baby backwash even at the human breast that there's some sort of passage of, of the antigens right so that so. the the mother the mother in one form or another um i remember the my my professor at the time saying that even the reason we kiss the mothers kiss their babies could potentially be a remnant of that aspect mm -hmm. that we don't really like lick our babies like the lioness would <laughs> right. lick uh <laughs> the pup but um i thought that was always interesting that we Very could cool. potentially uh have this mechanism in place so um so yeah uh, other immunoglobulins found in human milk are igm and igg we spoke about that right we spoke about that initially at the beginning of the week when we talked about pasteurization and we say that igms are the ones that are melting i remember that that was a great mnemonic the concentration of secretory iga remains consistently high while the levels of IgM in human milk decrease over time in lactating mothers. So that's really rolling out choice D, which says that um, the IgA levels decrease over time. That is not true. That is IgM. Okay. You know, I was kind of afraid of this week, but it went, out, it went, it went well, I think. It was fun. I had a <laughs> great time. Oh, um, I did want to mention if people are wondering about the uh, metabolism of like fat and protein, and that actually comes up in the GI section, um, which is good because that's a much smaller proportion compared to the nutrition section, which is really um, the new um, uh, board specifications for nutrition are really about uh, parental nutrition, enteral nutrition, breast milk, uh, vitamin and nutritional supplements, um, and uh, nutritional deficiencies. So. Yeah. And um, you know what, Daphna, the, the thing that we haven't really touched on, which was all the calculations of, of mm. calories and stuff. I mean, Dr. Uh, Martin and Dr. Brodsky spoke about it um, last week on their episode. You need to do these problems. Yeah. There's problems in the questions. There's problems in the book. Um, obviously, it's not something that would be conducive. We did talk about the, the the calories of lipids and proteins and stuff, but obviously you need to do these. They will come up. Um, and it's something that we're not reviewing just because of the fact that it's just not something that lends itself to being done on a podcast. But this is super high yield. They said it themselves. You know it's high yield. So just don't don't forget. Um, yeah, and there's a great review at the end of the nutrition section in the newest um, yeah edition of yeah. the neonatology review by Brodsky and Martin. It's like 10 questions. And by the time you're done with the 10, you've, you've got it down pat. Yeah. So. You, they, they walk you back and forth through every possible scenario. Mm -hmm. So that's really helpful. Okay. Okay.
guys. This was fun. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we have a Broadscape Martin episode this week. Um, I think they're on a little bit of a break, but they'll be back. We're trying to figure out other high-yield stuff to um, give to you guys. Um, otherwise, we'll see you on Sunday for Journal Club. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphne and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.